there's so much beauty in our culture and there's also some unlearning to do. And I think it's important to be clear about what to keep and what the, to lovingly let go. And what I've found in my Asian leader clients is that we don't even know what we've learned to be able to unlearn it. We don't even know what we don't know. And so as an example of this, I have found that as a Asian American leader, they have an impeccable record, right? Great grades, went to great schools, have a great performance record, but then somehow get passed over for promotion or not be able to get the job or not be able to get the raise. And there's this consistent pattern. And what we realize is that the way in which we've been taught to be successful, which is to follow the rules, to be good, to be quiet, is actually not serving us now. You're listening to The Big Asian Energy Show, where every week we interview Asian experts, move makers, and ceiling breakers to uncover their secrets of success so we can help you reach your greatest potential. I'm your host, John Wang. Let's dive in. Welcome back to Big Asian Energy. Today, I'm very excited to have Annalisa Wolf with us. Annalisa is an executive coach for people of color, but her background is just a massive list of accomplishments. Uh, having graduated from Stanford with her BA as a Fulbright Scholar, a Pahara Fellow, she actually went into the military and became a captain before continuing into the path of becoming an executive coach. As a recent CEO, an Asian American, a mom, she found a way to find balance and calm. And after, despite this massive career going through the military, nonprofit, corporate companies, working as a brand manager for Colgate, Palmolive, and as a captain of the US Air Force, she has got so much to share about what it's like to step into a leadership role. So as we dive into her story and her journey and hearing all about how she helps empower and coach, especially women of color leaders that step into their strengths, I really always want to start with, first and foremost, a welcome. Anna-Lisa, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> I'm excited to have you. So I would love to hear about this incredible journey because I think that when I hear all of these different things. And you've also written books, children's books, like Asian Americans who inspire us and all these kind of things. I got to ask, how did this journey start? Where are you from and how did you end up being where you're now? It is like the American dream story. And I would tell the story. My parents immigrated. My dad was one of 10 kids, no money, got into the Navy. The U.S. Navy became a citizen, met my mom. It was like the time of America trying to bring in talent. So my mom came to America as a nurse, and then they met, and then they had my brother and me born in San Diego. It is a story of, oh, they had nothing, and then their kids rose to this. My brother's like a literal aerospace engineer, and then I've had my career, and so it's the story I would tell, okay, if you work really hard, you can make your dreams come true. And frankly, as I learned and throughout our lives, it actually is, there's like systemic racism, there's structural issues, and we have to stop with the myth telling, right? Yes, it's true that we were able to pull ourselves up, but there's the model minority owning that and then being able to say, okay, what choice do I have now in my life to start to own my power, own my story and own my being? So this is like an overarching arch, but it did start way back growing up, being grateful to be in America, 
having my parents tell me we're going to go on to college, not even having a ton of money, but like believing I could do it. So those were the origins. Wow. So your father, was he the one who first came to North America? He was the first one. And he was the one who brought in actually the rest of his family, my uncles, my aunts, and now their kids. So it was a generational change based on my dad. And then my mom too, different circumstances, but we actually don't have that many family back in the Philippines anymore. So let's dive into that. You mentioned the model minority myth. And for some of us, this is a term that we've heard a lot. For those people who haven't heard of this term or doesn't quite understand it, can we explain that a little bit? Sure. So it's this perception that there's a model minority, which are Asian Americans, that show that if you work hard, you can achieve. But the reality is that pitted people of color against each other because then it made it seem, okay, black people or Latinos or these other groups, why aren't you achieving when this other group's achieving? There must be something wrong with you. But the reality is that it was set up that way. When you go to schools that are underfunded and you go into poorer neighborhoods, live in those neighborhoods, you're set up to go to not good quality schools and that sets you up for not great jobs. So we have to see that the model minority was meant to separate groups of people of color instead of unify us, which is what we, I think, should be doing. As an Asian North American, I think some Asian people I've talked to are, okay, but why is that a problem for us? We do work hard, especially we look at statistics, like we do well in school. There's a little bit of a stereotype, but we also go, yeah, we grew up working, <laughs> doing a lot of math questions. Why is that a problem for not just using us against other people of color, but why is that such a big issue for us as well? As you know, John, there are a wide variety of Asian people. I call it mm -hmm. like all Asian people, right? There's yeah. Chinese, Korean, Indian, Burmese, Filipino. There's a huge array of people. And when you say the model minority, okay, then all Asian Americans are doing really well. They all get good jobs. They don't need help. They don't need resources. Let's not pay attention mm -hmm. to them. It's actually not true. There are some that are doing really well. And we talked about how my parents got here because they needed talent. And there is a lot of that brain drain happening in Asia. So this group of people had kids who then did well, but that doesn't take into consideration that there's a huge group of Asians who have not gotten enough attention and actually do need a lot of help. And there's a lot of mental health and the illness that comes from that too. So it is a too big of a story to apply to everybody. In actuality, you should see that like people do need help. Please pay attention and let's work together. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. At the end of the day, the core issue is with all these kind of racial discriminations is that we get put into boxes. We get put into boxes of how we're supposed to look and how we're supposed to act and et cetera, et cetera. But we're not a monolith. And, and truthfully, if we just take race out of it, we are just human beings. I want to come back to the systemic thing in a second, because that's such a big and important topic that we have to be able to examine the pieces of. And it's not something that's so easy as being saying, okay, there's a racial discrimination. Of course there is. But how do we dismantle that? Let's come back to your story, because your background is really <laughs> fascinating. First and foremost, what was your journey like? How did you, you know, at what point did you go into through your core education, going to Stanford? How did you end up in the military? So I went to an okay high school and I applied to Stanford because one of my good friends was wearing a Stanford sweatshirt and I didn't have a lot of college resources. And he said, I said, what's that? He said, I want to apply to Stanford. It's my favorite school. It's the best school ever. 
I really want to go here. This is my dream school. And I said, uh-huh. maybe I should look at it too. It frankly was that sweatshirt. And I applied and amazingly enough, I got in and I got that big envelope that said, congratulations. And I showed it to my parents. And I remember they sat me down and said, we're so happy for you, but it's really expensive because I immediately turned to the page with how much it costs. And they said, how about community college? It would be so much cheaper. Everyone can transfer. Two years, you transfer, you go to a UC school, University of California. Your dad has like benefits there. Why not? And I remember crying and saying, I have followed your rules my entire life, but I'm not going to do that. And I put my foot down and I said, no. And of course that caused a ton of tension in the house, but it really helped when my dad said, Hey, maybe you could consider applying for a ROTC scholarship which I was like, dad, do you know me at all? I'm not at all a military person. And I've been a military kid with you being in the military for 22 years. And I don't want to join the military, but I got a full ride. I could pick the school. I was like, maybe this is an opportunity to go to the school that I really want to go to have a full ride and then be able to serve in the air force. So it ended up being this package that the air force, I think was the best career experience of my life. Amazingly enough, I would never have said that as 16. Wow. Did that mean that you joined the Air Force right after graduation or did you have to go comp? Did you have to join beforehand? Yeah. So Stanford has a satellite site at San Jose State and we would have our training at 630 in the morning. So I'd throw on a sweatshirt, my uniform, I would head there and then I would be back at Stanford by maybe 9 a.m. So no one was up by then. So people didn't even know. My good friends didn't even know that I was doing ROTC and they're like, what are you doing after graduation? And I told them I'm actually joining the Air Force. And they're like, what? When did this happen? And like, I was a terrible cadet. I would got yelled at. It felt like I was at home, but it was like these cadets that were yelling at me about my uniform or my scuffed up shoes. And yeah, when I went to boot camp training, it's this like huge summer camp in Florida with five degree weather. And you were tested to see how strong you are. They sat me down and said, I'm not sure you're going to pass. Like you might fail. And if you fail, you will be kicked out. And so I was like, oh my gosh, I don't want to be kicked out. I have a scholarship and I don't want to fail. So it was this like crazy experience where I really got to see what I could do as a military cadet and then later as an officer. I don't know many Asian Americans who go into the military. I personally don't know. I'm sure there's plenty. Was there many in your experience or did you sometimes feel like the odd one out? completely odd one out. Women, like it is not seen in the officer training program. So uh, let me just tell you this quick story. We're at Florida and I'm wearing like a tank top and like maybe too short of shorts. It's like California. Uh I'm from California. I walk in, everyone has buzz cuts. The girls have buzz cuts and everyone's wearing like a button down shirt, long pants, khakis. And here I am in this California attire and immediately start getting yelled at. And I was like, this is not good because you really do. If you're at the bottom, like 10%, they will kick you out. So I was really worried that I would get kicked out. And amazingly enough, when I started focusing on doing what I think has become my leadership style, which is all about getting to know the people around you and saying, Hey, John, how are you? You seem to be struggling or just how can we help the team? Things like that actually got me, I think, spotlighted in front of other officers. And I eventually ended up graduating as like their version of, it's called distinguished graduate, which is like the valedictorian of that camp. And so it was this crazy coming home where people said, Hey, did you kick kicked out? Were you okay? 
to then seeing that they had some distinguished graduate and oh my gosh, it's this kind of slacker cadet <laughs> that somehow <laughs> was at the top of her class. So it was yeah. insane. As a woman of color, 5'2", and then with people who are twice my size white, like it's yeah. a different way to lead for sure. Let's talk about that a little bit. What was it like to be a Asian American <laughs> woman of color next to all these big white guys who are have that background and that experience. I'm going to tell you, John, this is my experience in my life. Like we're in these spaces, uh -huh. and especially as you get more senior in boardrooms or in business school or in corporate world, I am sometimes the one of the few women, one of the few women of color. And you have to, as you have this podcast name, Big Asian Energy, you have to take space. You have to actually command energy. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you the story. Okay. I'm a cadet. They're like hundreds of people all lined up and we're trying to work off our demerits. So you have whatever amount of demerits. At 80, everyone has different amount of demerits. What is a demerit and what does it mean to work off the demerit? Okay, so every time you do something wrong, they give you a demerit. It's a bad thing. Accumulating more demerits is even worse and it, you have to work them out by doing push-ups or doing additional, <sighs> call them chores, but right. demerits are bad. Scrubbing the decks. Yeah, scrubbing yeah. the deck. Yeah. Okay, so imagine that, right? And we're all mm -hmm. supposed to work off our demerits. And the right. system is that when you work off your demerits, if I had, say, 12 or 20, I work my demerits off and I'm done. And I can leave my little group, or my platoon, or whatever the thing is, and I can just peace out. Here's an example. There is hundreds of people, one cadet leader in the front. For whatever reason, he steps away. I think he's, like, working with something else. It's like a minute. Okay, big Asian energy, however I was, maybe 22 years old, I don't know how old, five foot two Filipino Annalisa stands in front of the group and I yell out at my command, which means you will follow me now. Wow. Anything I say we're gonna do. And I think people were shocked because having me, because it was not a protocol. Yeah. And then I said at my command and I was like right. 10 hut. Everyone got to formation. I said, the rules are you will get the average of what your group is. You will work off. We were going to work off that average. Come up to me to know what that average is. We're going to figure out the average and we're going to work it all off together. So we will start together and end together. I got the average, maybe 30 demerits. And I said, let's start working it out. And I was like, let's do jumping jacks. I picked like the easiest exercises. I was like arm circles, put your hands in the same sky. And I think the adults like caught, first of they're, they're like, who is this woman? And then they were like, well, I know they're like, you're doing arm circles. And I was like, okay, next exercise, diamond pushups. And I was like, 10, go. <laughs> yeah. That was the kind of wacky big Asian energy that I had to somehow hold out of me. And then that helped to say, I'm not the stereotypical math, piano, quiet girl who yeah. like doesn't make stuff happen. Now, was that always who you were? Because I feel like that's super impressive. You're 22 years old. I feel like a lot of, especially women of color, oftentimes are so conditioned to believe that the best way to be, be a good girl. Don't make too much noise. Follow other people. And there's such a stereotype around that. And I'm just picturing you, five foot two, 22 years old, standing and yelling at these big dudes around it. How did you step into that energy? There's a few things. One is I was quiet and shy. And I, having moved so often because my dad was in the Navy, we lived in 
so many different houses trying to move around with this job. I went to mm -hmm. eight schools growing up, K-12. And when you move and you're the new kid, often it's hard, but at the same time, you get to try on different hats, right? I've definitely been the nerdy kid. I've definitely been the Valley Girl ditzy person. I've been the athletic person. And it's nice to try them on because you're gonna move to the next location and then get to evolve. And so I think that kind of getting to be in new spots, be the new person, get out there, even if you don't know what you're doing, fake it until you make it, that is huge. And so when I saw that the person stepped aside and it was more than a minute, I thought to myself, get out of my thinking head and act. Like if I had mapped it out, okay, first I'm gonna stand there and then I'm gonna call attention and then I'm gonna call the demerits and then I'm gonna, okay, what will people think? I don't know if I, my, my voice is scratchy. What if I'm not old enough, like loud enough? What if people laugh at me? Like I have learned to stop with that mental hell and just go do it, take yeah. action and stop right. like doubting myself. But I think that happened because I got to try on different identities. And it also happened because mm -hmm. I think that I started to get my dad's approval because I was trying to, as you said, John, earlier, like striving, trying to prove myself, be a good girl. Mm -hmm. And finally, my dad said, you did, did a good job. I'm glad you went to Stanford and you're, I'm proud of you. So I think that helped too. And me being part of the military was like a connection. I was like, dad, they're yelling at me for my shoes. And he said, I don't know why. I was the one who shined them. I was like, I don't know why either. So that helped. So what I'm hearing is get out of your head. Sometimes we get, we can't keep waiting for people's permission. At a certain point, we just got to step into it and go, I'm going to give myself permission today. I'm going to be the one to give myself permission, not to overthink it and take action and, and step into it. And at the same time, having that parental approval, of course, I'm sure contributes to it. Is, is this something that you work with your clients on? Because you're an executive coach. You help people step into C-levels, right? Definitely. Own your power. Step into the room. Take space. Make sure you're known. Make sure you just speak with conviction. Have a strong handshake. Show up like you deserve to be here and you have something to say. Make sure you're heard. So it's this like playbook in the very beginning. First thing. I want you to speak at least three times. The first question is always the easiest. So you probably want to take that. And if you keep with the habit of showing up and speaking up, it becomes less uncomfortable, more part of your nature. And all of a sudden you're doing the next harder thing. So it's like baby sets, but with a ton of intention and then a playbook to allow you to take away the thought and then just be in the moment and execute based on the plan. I love that. Do, do you work specifically only with people of color or do you work with everyone across the board? I work with pretty senior, mostly nonprofit, and I have some corporate C-levels. So that's my clientele. I love to serve people of color, particularly women of color, but I also have clients who range from in different races, including white, just to be clear. <laughs> of course. Looking across the board here, do you find that Asian Americans or people who identify as Asian have certain patterns that might keep them from stepping into that when you're working with them as a coaching client? Definitely. So the thing about being Asian is there's so much beauty in our culture and there's also some unlearning to do. And I think it's important to be clear about what to keep and what the, to lovingly let go. And what I've found in my Asian leader clients is that we don't even know what we've learned to be able to unlearn it. We don't even know what we don't know. And so as an example of this, I have found that as a Asian American leader, they have an impeccable record, right? Great grades, went to great schools, 
have a great performance record, but then somehow get passed over for promotion or not be able to get the job or not be able to get the raise. And there's this consistent pattern. And what we realize is that the way in which we've been taught to be successful, which is to follow the rules, to be good, to be quiet, is actually not serving us now. And to step to the next level means being a different leader and hopefully an authentic leader, but one that actually shows up, takes space, is able to self-advocate, toot their horn, things that are not part of the Asian culture. And so it's to let go and to say, you know what, John, I am a humble person, but I also know it's important for me to be able to speak about things that I'm able to contribute and my strengths and talents and my accomplishments, because that's gonna allow me to have a bigger impact. So when I meet you, I will probably tell you that I've been CEO of a nonprofit or that I went to certain schools, depending on the context, because I do want you to know that there is, that I come with accomplishment and that I could possibly be helpful to you or you could be helpful to me. And that's how, frankly, white people do it, right? We wanna share both in personal relationships and not necessarily be humble in what we've accomplished because it's a way we can elevate each other. So that's a huge change from what I've been raised to be humble and quiet and never to toot any of my horn, other horns for sure, but not mine. When I look at my own background, you know, growing up, I still remember times where I would feel scared and I felt guilty in talking about my experiences. Even when I'm the most qualified person, and I know that I'm the most qualified person having gone through it, I felt weird to say, I know about this and I'm actually quite educated on this topic because it feels oh, uncomfortable. You know, I've been taught that to be humble is to stay quiet and let somebody else point it out and to raise what it is that you've done to, to wait for the compliment. I think it will be okay if everyone's like that, but the reality is we're playing a game and it's a white supremacist game, which is you need to champion yourself and you need to be aggressive. And you don't have to be like dominating everybody and stepping over people to help elevate yourself. You can elevate yourself, elevate others, and do it in a authentic and kind and supportive way, but you have to take a step, show up, and actually make yourself known and take space. It's honestly, the big Asian energy idea is huge for me because I don't think we even realize our power and that we don't even realize how much that taking power allows us to have more power to help each other. So that's actually why I do it. I don't do it to be Look at me, I'm the best. Like that actually doesn't feel authentic to me, but mm -hmm. it feels authentic to me to share my story in hopes of having other people know, hey, it's okay to share stories. It's okay to mm -hmm. get in front of people and then have hundreds of people look at you and call them to attention and tell them what to do. It's okay to do things differently and be scared and still do it anyway. So that's why this, the sharing of stories is more for support and it allows me to be authentic, but also to allow myself to be out there and hopefully elevate my own mission. I think this is a key part of it as you're talking about it is that there's almost a little bit of a responsibility that we take on, which is to say it's not just for ourselves when we are stepping into our greatest power. It's when we get to do it, we give other people permission to. We give the people who look like us the permission. And that's something that was huge for me growing up is I never got to see that many people in leadership positions who are CEOs and who are in, let's say, athletes that I looked up to who look like me. So as a result, I think unconsciously, I never had that model of leadership. And when we see people who look like us step into that, it changes. 
it changes my relationship to my own culture and it changes my relationship to myself. For sure. Taking the CEO spot, John, for me at the nonprofit, I wasn't looking to be CEO and I was thinking about being mm. consultant to the organization. But what I realized is if my mission is to help elevate leaders, particularly leaders of color, women leaders, then I need to actually show up and take space mm. in hopes that it will support others who also want to have those spots too. And as a leader, to lead authentically and lead with empathy, but also to hopefully promote self-care. Some of these things that we pre-pandemic was not a thing. In nonprofit, talking mm. about self-care is pretty selfish. And mm. as well as Asian culture, right? Let's go blow thousands of dollars on a vacation. Like that, was, that was not the way we lived. We went to Vegas, I stayed at Circus for seven cents. I don't even know, like it was just cheap, right? And that was fine, that was a vacation. So like, I think it's important to start to say, you know, I deserve luxury or I deserve to treat myself. I deserve sleep, right? Yeah. Especially as a mom, like I'm gonna be a mom and, and lead and it's possible to do both. So yeah. taking space, it's important. As a leader, one of the things you mentioned is when you're a CEO, you led with empathy. It's such a fine line to draw between the balance, right? How do you know when you're being compassionate, empathetic, and when you should set some stronger boundaries and maybe be a little bit more assertive and channel that like, no, this is what we're gonna do now, guys. Like, how do you draw that balance? Oh, John, I gotta tell you, I did not, I was like lesson learned, made a mistake, lesson learned. I'm empathetic as a natural person. I have been part of so many different leadership styles from the military to business, to nonprofit, to burning through people. And when I became CEO, I said, I'm gonna lead differently. I'm going to be an empathetic mm -hmm. leader who really listens, expects that people's intentions are going to be loving and pure and good, and we will work it through. And the reality, John, is that while that's nice and sweet, that we also have to draw boundaries. So for me, leading, for example, through the pandemic, I asked my teachers, do you want to come back? And I think some people would have said, I don't know why we want to ask. Like, we're coming back. It is what it is. People are going to be in unsafe environments. We need to do what's best for the children. That I wanted to lead with empathy. I wanted to see where people sit. And when they told me pretty clearly, I don't want to come back yet, I said, okay, then we're going to keep working remotely. And if we take care of each other, that's going to be better for kids. And then we'll come back the following year. And to me, that was a good decision. But I also believe that some people thought that was a soft way to make decisions, right? Just make the decision. Don't ask people. Like, go off your gut. There's no need to go through several rounds of input. Lure with an iron fist. And I've seen that leadership style. It's not my leadership style. But it, for some people, it appeared weak. Just make the decision. And I'm like, why can't I ask you what you think? We just make it. And I think people, different people need different things. I will never say people, they're bad or I'm bad or anyone's like bad. I think people need different things, organizations based on the life cycle of their, where they are, they need different things. And for me, what I realized was that perhaps organization needed a person with more of an iron fist, better, like I'm just gonna make a decision and move forward. And that's how people will better follow. And I think that's good to know. But for me, for sure, you wanna balance empathy Yes, I want to hear your perspective with, actually, we're just moving forward. I know you're going to feel a certain way, but I'm not here to be loved, liked. We're just moving forward. So I think it's a balance of both. That's a tough line to draw sometimes, right? Especially, I think, I imagine that being um, an Asian woman 
the ideals of what that leadership looks like because there's stereotypes that we run into. If you're too tough and if you're too harsh and a white guy in that same position who just lays down the law, it's, oh, he's decisive and he's strong and he's not afraid to make tough decisions. And I feel like a lot of Asian people, they get, oh yeah, she's a dragon lady. And that kind of perspective, not to use certain languaging, but there's a lot of pushback against it. How do you deal with something like that? So for sure, there's the double-edged sword. You can't be light and you also can't be a leader that's really decisive. Mm. You can't do both. If you are too decisive, you're like a bully, like Hillary Clinton, right? If you're too soft, mm. for example, like me, maybe people do like me in general, but I'm not sure you're the best leader. So it's like fascinating. Mm. John, can you think of a women leaders who you're both, wow, they're loved and they're a great leader. Like it's very hard to do both. Mm. So you can't, it's set up for you to fail. Frankly, I, I feel like I'm a good leader, but there's no good way out. So perhaps mm. what they needed was like more of a white type of white supremacy. <laughs> well, which was just like, this is how we're doing it. Which is fascinating. We feel said, wow, I don't think they were very transparent or there are a lot of backdoor deals. And I said, we're not going to have that anymore. Let's make sure salary scales are clear. Our promotions are clear. We're going to follow a process that actually centers diversity, equity, inclusion. When you give mm -hmm. people opportunities and you don't play favorites, but that doesn't work for everybody because they really like the old way. So I mentioned this because while there's maybe good intention on my part to support the larger organization and hopefully make it more scalable, more equitable, there's going to be haters. And I think that's something as a leader that I just didn't realize to make culture more transparent, DEI centered, or more empathetic. It's a balance. We have to rotate based on what's going on, who the people are and support the organization for what it needs. Let's take a quick change of the channel here. I want to ask about the books because I, I checked out your books and you're, you're actually writing a new one right now about Native Americans who inspire us. But first, the book Asian Americans who inspired us. Why did you decide to write this book? I was looking for a book it's... for my kids, just like you, John, trying to find people representation. I didn't have that either. And I said, I need people for my kids to look at so they can be proud of being brown and they're half white, half Filipino. And at the time, there were just very few. So as you are a person like this too, when we see a need, we go try to fill it. And I decided to write this book. So that's how Asian Americans Who Inspire Us came to be. And it's amazing because it's like on these curriculum lists for schools now. And that's at libraries and Barnes and Noble. And I would never imagine that it would be at this level, but it's expanded. My son and I wrote Native Americans Who Inspire Us, which we launched for Indigenous Peoples Month this past October. And then we're right now working on Latin Americans who inspire us. So it's like a really fun project to work on with my son who's 10. And then also to continue having diverse role models because I actually learned so much and I'm so inspired by these people who I didn't read about in my history books. Did you write the first one with your kids or were you just, you wrote that on your own, but you said that the, the newer ones are the ones you're writing with your kids, right? Yeah, the first one, my son helped me narrow down who to write about. And then I would talk to him about the story. For example, yeah. Tammy Duckworth, I started with, yeah. here she was on a plane, her legs were blown off. And he said, I don't know if that's the best way to start mom for the story. You probably don't <laughs> want to talk about that. And I said, okay, great. Thanks for the feedback. And then I rewrote it. I, I think it's fun like that, just to, to see from a kid's perspective, does this story resonate? How am I telling it? Right. And then after I would yeah. tell it, put 
pen to paper, or I guess start typing on the computer, what the story would be. So it was a fun way to collaborate. And, and when you were writing it, did you feel like you learned anything about the experience, especially about being an Asian American? Definitely. I realized that we're not by ourselves in this journey, that there's a lot mm -hmm. of self-doubt, that mm -hmm. there's a lot to overcome, but we can, no matter what sphere, whether it's athletics or whether it's some new research or whether it's changing policies, even if there's no one ahead of us, like we're the first Asian American Olympic skater like Chrissy Yamaguchi or a researcher like David Ho or someone who has the first Asian American politician. It's okay to be the first, but we uh -huh. need to be the first or we need to be one of the first so that we can have other people come after us. And so it's really neat uh -huh. to see that, as we said, before, and you've heard, we stand on the shoulders of the people who come before us. And that's for sure true. First and foremost, is there a struggle that you see with people stepping into being Asian American, stepping into these kind of C-level roles that there's this kind of worthiness question that comes up for them? Am I ready to take this on? Am I capable of leading all these other people? Is that something that comes up with people that you meet? Yeah, I think two things come up. One is, do I want to have power? Because Asian mm. values isn't about, generally speaking, power, right? You're power hungry. That's going to be looked down upon. You want to be a mm -hmm. community supporting person. So one is, do I want to take power? And then second is, am I worthy of that power? Will I do a good job? And mm -hmm. fear of making mistakes and therefore perfectionism. Those two end up putting people back. They don't even put their hats in the ring. They don't even raise their hand to say, I'm interested. And so there's no even stepping up to the plate because they've never even considered themselves worthy or of value to take power. So those two don't get us to the plate. But when you step up to the plate, I think what stops us is that for me, when I thought about it and when I coach clients, it's like, how do I lead? All of the different ways of leading have been very different. The military was very, actually very caring and very command and control, both at the same time. And then corporate, it was bottom line and also burn and churn. And then in nonprofit, interestingly enough, it was a who can help me build the organization and building alliances. And so there's so many different leadership styles. And I think when you get into the seat yourself, we decide who are we, who do we want to be? And I think we have to see, especially as women, as people of color, how people perceive us and how we decide to show up, what consequences are going to be there. So even that example that you mm -hmm. shared, if I decide to be empathetic, I will not be surprised that people will think I'm a weak leader or that I'm not as decisive as I can be. How can I mitigate that? Okay, first, decide where I'm gonna get input. For me, I was like, I want input everywhere because I love input. I want, I, if we don't have to make a decision tomorrow, then let's take our time. You can't make decisions, you take too long, you're weak. And I'm like, no, I'm not weak. I just wanna lead like, and so knowing that, if I were to come back, I would say, okay, John, my style is inclusive and empathetic However, I will pull that card only in these situations which meet this bar. Otherwise, I will just rip the cord, explain to people why, and move on. It's like understanding your style, having the dividing line about when to do it, when you will get backlash, accepting the backlash, and then being able to keep moving forward without getting in your own way. Am I worthy of this role? Am I deserving? Like You need to get all that mental space out because leading is a hard job. 
So that's why I think getting a coach is so important. It's such a lonely job and it's like not a very popular job. You're not friends with people at work, right? You're just by yourself. And if you don't hear anything, that's a good thing because most of the time, if you do hear something, it's probably not like very positive, right? Here's what's wrong. So yeah, I think being a CEO is hard and especially for people of color women, even like more challenging. Jeez. That's why there's not that many yeah. because it's like when you do get hired, it's hard job. When they start taking a person of color or a woman, we're not lining up for this job. So it's a really mm -hmm. hard job to then fill. What is the biggest frustration that you hear from people of color who are stepping in that leadership position? I think that we're always trying to prove ourselves. Am I doing enough? Am I doing it perfectly enough? Am I showing them that I'm worthy of this job? And the reality is that the deck is probably stacked against us as a woman, as a person of color. They're like, how did you get that job? And right. any mistake is going to be amplified. There's not a lot of rope to make mistakes. So there's a lot of doubt and there's a lot of, I'm going to keep working and making sure that I've left no stone unturned so that I can protect myself. So I think there's a lot and just not, that's not even getting the job done. Just making sure that you are trying to prove your worth. It's a lot of heavy load. The one word that you said just now, the, the word is perfect. I could feel so much energy behind that because <laughs> I feel like it's, it is expectation. We, we are expected to be perfect because any mistake you make is not just a mistake that reflects on you as a leader, but everyone who looks like you and everyone who's going to follow in your footsteps are going to get measured by that. So if it's something that happens to you, were you hired because of affirmative action? Is that why you got the role? And at the same time, if something bad that happens to you, did you make a mistake in that? Oh, should we have gone with somebody who's more traditional in leadership styles? I could see that as being such a difficult frustration of trying to be perfect all the time. For sure. Yeah. I used to be crazy OCD and it was mm. hard to break that pattern. But for sure, as a leader, there's not a lot of room to make mistakes. So that compulsion came back where I said, you know, I have to release that. That's not going to serve me. There's so much to do. I cannot be a perfectionist, but it's there. Like any mistake, it's like, oh, there you go. And I said, but I also increased salaries and I didn't cut jobs and I bought these books and we're doing diverse equity and inclusion and it's more sustainable. Oh no, because you did this. And I was like, okay. I also felt as a kid, my dad was like, not good enough. Should be better. Mm. Look at, so your cousin, look at this person, come on. And mm -hmm. you're like, this, this is a road that we got to stop looking externally and just be like, you know what? I got to trust myself. I know I'm enough. Whatever happens, it's out of my control. So just do the best I can and then go home and try to release it, get some therapy, go running <laughs> and be a mom. But yeah, people in the CO seat, hats off. It is a hard job. And that's honestly why I'm like, we got to support them, John, because mm -hmm. it is hard. It is hard, but it's also important. It is, it's it is important, so... <laughs> exactly. Hard and important. Please stay in those roles. Yeah. Please get those roles yeah. and stay in those roles. Yeah. What do you think are some of the biggest challenges that are facing us as a Asian Americans in when it comes to leadership right now? We've listed a lot of them. We've listed the expectations that's been levied against us. But given what is going on in the world right now, what do you think some of the biggest challenges we're facing? So as you and I have talked about before, there's like a anti-Asian hate, right? Anti-Asian sentiment. Oof. And yeah. that's pretty tough. And that we're, as a community, I think we're isolating or can have potential to work more with people of color. And there's mm -hmm. anti-Blackness in the 
Asian community. So noting that, even with my, my family, some of the things that I hear said, I'm like, that's not, please, we need to move forward. But I would say that there's a sense of worthiness that we need to know we're worthy of being here, speaking up, taking space, getting what we want. Mm -hmm. And that's actually how, when we experience our own liberation, that helps the whole movement with liberation. And I think that's also how we get change. Because when we say things are not fair or not just for all people of color, it then, as a movement, becomes more powerful. So I guess I would say that as Asian American leaders, if you could see the broader context and speak up and risk more, then perhaps we can move all of us forward faster. I love that. You have gone through so many different experiences. As you said, you have worn so many different hats from the military to education, nonprofit, and then the corporate world. And just reflecting on your own culture and identity and having written a book about being a Filipino homecoming, what would you say are some of the biggest insights you've gained from that experience? So John, the biggest arc I would say in my life and career is that growing up as an Asian American, I never identified or embraced my culture being Filipino. I would say that I actually rejected it. Trying to assimilate, be white, be mm. part of the successful crowd, having people accept me as someone who was successful, that I was an American first, and then yes, okay, I'm brown, and yes, I'm Asian, and yes, I guess Filipino. And it has been my life's journey to learn to love and accept that part of me. And actually that book that you mentioned, Balak Bai, I wrote that after my Fulbright experience. And I was in Guam and I was writing the Fulbright essay and I wrote that essay about my dad. And I wrote it about how he had been at this military base and how he had learned English at this military base next to his barrio in the Philippines and how that completely changed his trajectory being able to speak English well enough to pass the test, become a Navy officer in the United States military, and then bringing over his whole family and then having me and my brother. So that entry point allowed me to do a Fulbright in the Philippines where I got to live in my dad's house and I got to try to live a local life with a bucket and cold water to take showers. We didn't have a stove, so we would use fire. We bought a refrigerator and a fan so that I could have that. It was really hot. But that changed how I viewed things. I was like, why do my parents always tell me about being grateful to be American? Why are they always telling me about how lucky I am to go to school and how they want me to go to college? They're so annoying, right? And I realized that they're doing the best they can and yes, there's some craziness for sure. My dad was really strict. A power, and I actually did my research, John, on prostitutes. I know. So imagine me, I'm in the military, I leave the military, I do a Fulbright at a, an old military base in the Philippines. I'm at bars interviewing people who look like me and we're pretty much the same age. And I'm asking them about their life story and I'm just like, that could be me, right? I thought that oh being a prostitute was a terrible thing. And actually it makes sense given their context and many of the contexts. And then who am I to judge? Who am I to judge my parents? Who am I to judge these women? I'm really judgmental. That's hard to see that. And I think that's what started the path of learning to love and accept my culture, my history. 
and even writing books about being proud, about being Asian American, Asian Americans who inspire us. It's been a huge part of the reason I, I try to coach women leaders of color because there's so much legacy and history that we need to love, right? Like first love ourselves. That's the first step before loving others and taking care of others. Do you love yourself, John? Do you love you as you with all the mistakes which make you cool, right? And human. Can you show up and not be scared that something will happen? In fact, that's where you're beautiful. So I think that work, and I'm still doing the work, right? Generational trauma is real. Being able to see that as tough as my dad was, like his dad was even tougher and his dad's dad, my great grandfather was even tougher. It continues. And if I don't do my own work, I will parent like my parents. It's, it's natural, very natural. It's hard to do the personal work, but so needed. So having a coach, a therapist, any medicine journeys, whatever you need to do so you can get out, right? And see in reality what's actually going on. Absolutely. It's also in some ways, I love that you went back to the culture to see that connection. And it's even an interesting thing because even that word back for me has such loaded meaning. My parents were Taiwanese. And when I go, quote unquote, back to Taiwan, there's a disconnect. It's a discovery of something that's both me and completely not me. I consider myself more North American in my culture and upbringing and experience. So exactly, it's hearing about your story of how you went to the Philippines and saw this alternate path of these different people's lives. We begin to realize how complicated and multi-generational what we have gone through can be. Our parents teach us based on what they had and they needed to survive. So we get to heal that so that we don't need to keep passing it downwards. For sure. In consciousness, we haven't talked about that yet, but can we be aware and so we can interrupt the pattern? And it's hard because we all are in pattern mode, in auto mode, and to disrupt it, stay awake and be at choice is, I think, for me, the goal. If I, I was narrowing down my values to three things and I said connection, contribution, and then for sure consciousness. Can I be conscious? And I hope that by being more conscious and have a lot of more work to do, so to be clear, I'm not saying I'm like some guru at this, but it's helping me, I hope, model for my kids and hopefully that they'll really break the cycle that we can get liberation. Isn't that what we all want? Like liberation to be ourselves, be accepted, right, mm -hmm. for who we are. But that starts first with can we love and accept ourselves as we are now? Yeah. And it's such a challenging but deep question. When you ask me, you're like, John, do you love yourself? And I, <laughs> full disclosure, right before this call, I was on a call with my counselor and talking about the deep generational work of collecting and receiving and connecting to my ancestors and the struggles they went through for survival. And to contextualize that, there is a part of this. Actually, the, the term that I learned today is transgenerational epigenetic trauma. And it's an actual science that looks at how trauma is actually can be passed down literally through our DNA to be healed. It's held as a part of us and to hold both gratitude for our ancestors and what they did to give us where we are at and to also hold acceptance and to then heal from that place is so powerful and so meaningful. And that is really the source of our big Asian energy. <laughs> for sure. It is the edge, John, right? Can we be grateful mm. and also push ourselves to the edge 
to grow further and be it the, the both. Because if we're growing too much because we reject it all, or if we're so grateful that we want to stay stagnant, we're going to be in a tough place. So can we be at that edge? I love that you named it because once we pass that, I think amazingly, could you imagine the big Asian energy that comes out of that? We're just in, energetically in the world. It's like huge. Oh so can we stand yeah. there and move yeah. forward? I love it. Is there any tips or, or takeaways you'd like to share, especially for people who have seen your journey and heard about it today and want to go down that path of stepping into their leadership, but maybe feeling scared or they're trying to figure out what the next step, any tips that you want to share with them? I'd say first is you're not alone. Find other people, other leaders of color, other women that have similar journeys and know that you have community because we are truly stronger together. So that's the first one. And as part of that, if you can get a coach, hopefully your company can pay for that, but it's so helpful to get people who are external to you to say, hey, look, that's a mindset issue. Let's face it and decide what to do with it and move on. So first of all, community and coach. And the second thing I would say is that my hope is that we can all live in alignment with our values. So figure out what you want in your deepest gut of what's most important to you, what your values are, what your hopes and dreams are, and try to move there as swiftly as you can. Those of you guys who are on to find out more about Annalisa, please go check out her website at AnnalisaWolf.com. You can work with her directly one-on-one -on -one as a coach or join her boss mamas, woman of leaders and woman leaders of color and facilitating group coaching program. As well, go check out her book, Asian Americans Who Inspired Us, which has been named to the gold house list, which is a huge deal. Thank you once again for being with us today and we'll catch you on the next one. As Asian Americans, we are as strong as our collective community. So if there's something that you found valuable in this episode, share it with a friend and tag us on social media. And if you like the show, leave us a review and send us a screenshot and you might win some big Asian energy merch, which we give out every month so you can go out there and own your big Asian energy.